Uh, please turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. As you turn there, I will begin to introduce um, our, our passage. The book of Romans is Paul's letter to the Romans to basically lay out almost like a resume. He's saying, here is my gospel. This is the gospel I preach. In many ways, that's why it's such a full expression of the gospel. And he longs for them to support him in the ministry of the gospel, almost like Rome would become another Athens for him. Um, I mean, sorry, Assyria, that they would send him out and to, on the missionary journeys. So he says, I want to get to you in Rome. I want to visit you. But just in passing, I want to go there and impart some spiritual gift to you. And then I'd like you guys to impart a gift to me and help me get the gospel to Spain. And I'm sure if he got to Spain, he probably would send a letter to someone else saying, could you guys help me get the gospel farther and get the gospel farther? As he says in Romans 15, he wasn't trying to build on another man's foundation. The, the ministry God gave the Apostle Paul was to get the gospel to all who have not heard it. And so Romans is him saying, here is my letter. Here is my gospel. Let me defend maybe things you heard about me that are not true. And so many times he's giving a defense. And so in, this is not a letter to unbelievers. This is to the church. But as you read Romans 1, 2, and 3, it lays out the gospel. And so often we can take it like he's writing to an unbeliever, which in chapter 2 he does write um, to them. He says, you. And so he's using a rhetorical device to address them directly. But he is writing to Christians. So Romans chapter 1, he lays out that the Gentile world is under sin. And one thing we can learn from Romans is, how did Paul preach? You can read Acts and you'll get firsthand accounts of summaries of his sermons, where here's a fuller account and say, you can see this is how he would probably have addressed a Gentile audience, like he did when he went to Athens in Acts 17 in chapter 1 of Romans. Chapter 2, this is what he probably would have preached like when he was in the synagogue addressing the Jews, speaking to them. And so Romans chapter 1, he's addressing more the Gentile world, and he speaks from general revelation because he's speaking to a Gentile world, Romans chapter 2, as he lays out the gospel, he's now addressing the Jews. He addresses the Jew, and so he goes right at them with the scriptures. And the main point of Romans 2 is he's addressing their hypocrisy. Their hypocrisy is they thought they were okay, but they weren't. And the word hypocrite, as most of you probably know, at least the Greek word hypocrite, it comes from the, the realm of acting, someone who was on stage pretending that's what a hypocrite was. And so he's saying, in many ways, you guys, you guys are pretending to be Christians, or you're pretending to be Jews. You're pretending to be the people of God. And so Romans chapter 2 is he's exposing that hypocrisy. He's exposing this hypocritical attitude. And what he's doing is he's leveling the playing ground. He's leveling the playing ground and saying, you, Jew would have agreed with Romans 1 that the Gentiles are far from the gospel. They're far from Christ. And what he's saying is you're just like them. In a sense, you're worse because you don't even see it. You're blind guides leading the blind. And so in Romans 2, he's trying to expose this hypocrisy, in a sense trying to remove that mask from them to expose who they truly are. And in doing so, he makes the Jew and Gentile in the, on the same footing. And that's one of the themes throughout the book of Romans is that the Jew and Gentile... They're in the, in the sense the same pit, but the same gospel can save both of them. And that's why he emphasizes over and over and over that salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. 
is both Jew and Gentile. The theme verse of Romans is Romans 1.16. He says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, it came to them first, and also to the Greek. And that theme runs throughout the whole book of Romans. As you go, you can see he picks it up again in Romans 3.9. He says, then because we have circumcision as Jews, we have the law. Does that mean we're better than the Gentile? He says, no, we've already established both Jew and Gentile are under sin. We are in the same position. And he goes on as he lays out the gospel in Romans 3.23. Many of you probably haven't memorized. He says, for there, there's no distinction. There is no distinction for we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. What's the all emphasizing? Both Jew, both Gentile, all of us, we are in the same position. The Jew is not in a better position than the Gentile. They are just as guilty. And as he goes into Romans chapter 10, the same theme he expresses, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Why? Because there is no distinction for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Because there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile is what he goes on to say. It's the same Lord who is rich to all who call upon him. And so he's leveling the playing ground, saying we're in the same position. But now the Jew may come, and this is our text today. The Jew may come and say, okay, Paul, yes, we have sinned. We wouldn't deny that. We are in many ways sinful like the Gentiles, but we have something they don't have. We have God's covenant. We have God's covenant. And we have two very distinct covenant signs that really give us confidence that we're fine. We have the God's, his law of his covenant, the Torah, and we have the sign of his covenant, circumcision. We have those two things of the covenant, the law and circumcision, and so we're okay. And so what Paul does at the end of Romans 2 is he attacks their confidence in these two signs, these two signs of the covenant, the law and circumcision. He goes after them. In the first paragraph we'll read, he goes after them and saying, okay, you have the law, but you're not doing it. And then he goes after circumcision. And he says, you have circumcision, but basically it means nothing to you if you don't, the reality of what it symbolizes doesn't exist. And so those are our two paragraphs we're going to look at. Let us read these paragraphs and then we'll look at them carefully. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. So he's going to go after them with the law. So that's the key word to, to look for, the law. Romans two seventeen. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And then the second paragraph, he goes after circumcision, our 
really goes after them in their false reliance on circumcision. Verse 25, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So what can we learn from these verses? For the people of God, how are we to approach a text like this, which is written really directly towards unbelieving Israel, unbelieving Jews? We can learn much about the nature of true religion. What is true religion? And in so doing, we can rid ourselves of remaining hypocrisy. For although we may not be the the hypocrite of, of the first century Jew, that doesn't mean there's no hypocrisy still in our hearts. And we can live more consistent lives and have a more sincere devotion to Christ. And for those who are outside of Christ today, and I know there are some here that aren't in Christ, this passage, in a sense, is especially for you. Especially for you. Paul is directly addressing someone who's in a position that is very close to religious things. And just the fact that you're here today, that means you're very close to religious religious things. And some of you have been close for many years, maybe all your life. And so you're very much in the position of the Jew. And one of the worst things about hypocrisy and self-deception is you don't know often you're deceived. It's usually the one wearing the mask isn't doing it knowingly. It's often they're not aware. They need to be awoken. They need to have the light shine upon them. That's why Paul uses uses language that's shocking, that's provocative to try to wake these people up. Just because you're surrounded by religious things doesn't mean that you have the reality within you. And that's what Jesus said. And many of these words are very, very similar to Matthew 23 and how Christ spoke in the Sermon on the Mount about unbelievers. They were like those tombs, he said. They looked beautiful on the outside, he said, but inward, they were dead man's bones. So with that as our intro, what we'll do is we'll look look at this under several headings Each um, major heading will be true religion is, true religion is. And so us as believers, let us try to understand more fully what is true religion. How can we be even more devoted to Christ? And if you're not in Christ, to see what is true religion, that it would be yours. Our first point is true religion changes your life. True religion changes your life. This is one of the main arguments of the entire chapter. What Paul has been arguing, basically, is if your your religion exists only in your profession, only in your speech, only in what you say, only in how you judge others, then your religion is false. It's false. God will judge us over and over, he says this, based on what we do, 
what we do. He's going to judge us according to works, he says, not according to merely what we said. Look at verse 1 of this chapter. After he talked about the Gentiles and their condemnation, probably surprisingly, in in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And so this has been the theme throughout this chapter, is what are you doing? Not what you're saying, not how you're judging others. What are you doing? He says in verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. That this judgment will be according to what you did. So not your, your closeness to religion, but look at your life and, and, and reflect and see, does my life actually show a changed life, a radically changed life? Look at verse 13 in this chapter. He says, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. It is those who do the law. Those, will be, those are the true people of God. Or as Christ said in, in Matthew 25, when he separates the sheep and the goats. You see, how does he judge them? How can you tell the difference? It's what they did. It's what they did. What they did was to distinguish them apart from the others. In our text, Paul reveals their hypocrisy by showing them in light of all their privileges, they're not practicing what they preached. They're not practicing what they preached. Let's um, divide this heading under, under two subheadings, two subheadings for um, helpful clarity and thought, but basically we're going to go through the verses. But two subheadings, this first subheading is, how close can you be to being a Christian and yet not be a Christian? How close can you be to being a Christian and yet not truly be a Christian? How close can you get We're going to see that this group of people, as Paul describes them, were in many ways very close. And yet, like the rich young ruler, they probably a lot of them walked away sad. He says here in in, um, Romans chapter 2, let's go through this list of privileges that they had. Romans 2, let's look at the first one, verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew, call yourself a Jew. It was a great privilege to be a Jew. But there's no benefits in merely calling yourself one and simply taking the title and saying, I'm taking this to myself. Or basically what Paul's saying over and over is true religion is not to be just simply heard, it's to be seen. It's something to be seen. It's something that changes your life. You actually see the effect in the life of the person. It's not chiefly about what we call ourselves, but it's that God has so powerfully called us unto himself that our lives are radically changed and we're never the same again. The second privilege he mentions here is he says, and you rely on the law. You rely on the law. There's kind of a tension if you read Paul where he'll speak very um, glowing terms of the law and then he maybe speak in in a way that sounds like negatively towards the law. And the law in and of itself, he says, it's good. It's, it's, it's holy, it's righteous, it's good. In Romans 7, he says that. The law, he says in Romans 7, it's spiritual. He, he loves the law. He delights in the law, as the, as the psalmist would say. And yet what he's saying here is, if you simply have the law, God entrusted the law to this people, and you now possess it, and now you're trusting in the fact that you merely have it. You merely have it. There's kind of an irony throughout this list where he's saying true things of them. They truly work. Um, people who 
were called Jews. They did rely on the law, but there's a, 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 he's building up to this rebuke, to saying you're not doing it though. And yes, you relied on it, but that was part of your problem, is you relied on it in a sense that you thought you were okay by merely possessing it, merely having it. If God has gifted you with a, a believing family, if he's gifted you with um, religious influences, that in and of itself is not enough to rely on. That is not where we're to put our trust. If your life isn't changed, if you're not doing the law, then there should be no sense of peace in relying on the law in that sense. If your religion does not actually result in you keeping the law, then it's a worthless religion. It's a worthless religion. These kind of are ascending arguments. You call yourself a Jew. You rely on the law. Then he goes the next step up. And he says, and you boast in God. You boast in God. Again, this is not necessarily negative. Boasting isn't always negative. It's more neutral. It's what you boast in. And generally speaking, throughout the scripture, boasting in God is a good thing. You can read that in 1 Corinthians 1 and Jeremiah. We, we are to, to boast in the Lord. And so there's a, a bit of irony in this where it is good to boast in God, generally speaking. But what he's getting at is, if you are speaking of God, you're, you're speaking to God, praying to him, God is on your mouth and on your lips, and you're living like the devil. That, that boasting is dishonoring to God. It, it's hypocrisy. It says you boast in God, but you actually, you're, you're dishonoring God with your life, with your life. It's kind of like the same argument in James chapter 3 when he talks about the tongue. He says, with it, the tongue, we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. And so this is a, a, a rebuke. You, you, you boast in God, but he's going to go on to say, but you don't honor him with the way you live your life. Another privilege, he says, and you know God's will. You know his will. And this is speaking of, of God's law. What, what has God determined us to do? What is God's will? He says, you know it. You know his will. And this also shows us how close you can be to being a Christian or being a, one of the, God's people and not be one. Is you can have the knowledge of God. You can have a, a vast knowledge of God and yet not truly be one of his. James also makes this argument in James 2. He says, the demons believe and they shudder. They know, they have some true knowledge of God, and yet that didn't save them. That doesn't make them right with God. These Jews, many of them, the scribes and the Pharisees, had vast knowledge. But they, like Jesus said, they searched the scriptures in vain. They didn't see him in it. They missed the whole point. In fact, not only does it not save you mere knowledge, it actually, it can be one of the greatest burdens, one of the greatest torments in hell is to go to hell with this vast knowledge and let that eat at you that I, I, I knew. I heard of Christ. I was sitting there that day during that storm, and I, I heard about the Lord Jesus Christ, and I didn't respond. Or I wondered, maybe I'm not a true Christian, but I didn't actually pursue it. I just moved on. That knowledge in and of itself will not save you, only acting upon it. He says, not only did they know the will of God, but they approved of what it was excellent. It wasn't simply they said, yeah, I know it. But they said, yes, and it is good. It is right. I approve. 
I, I know how to live my life to what is right and acceptable. Just approving it, but again, not doing it. Again, it's hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. And then he moves from these privileges to how did they respond to other people? And in many ways, it was commendable. It was excellent. Look at what they did. He says here, verse 19, And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, they not only had the knowledge, but they shared it with others. They said, yeah, we're, we're educating the, the, the foolish. We're educating the lost. We're educating the children. We're, we're letting others know. But as he's going to go on to say, merely teaching others does you no good if you don't teach yourself. If you don't practice what you preach, you're just a, a greater hypocrite. Now, so far, he has, in verse 16, uh, 17, he says, but if, he says, if, and now he's been given this long series, and now he finally comes to the then. Now, then, in verse 21, he says, if you did all these things, you taught others. He says in verse 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Do you not teach yourself? If you have all of these privileges, then what are you doing about it? If you're given all of this knowledge, all of this blessing through the law of God, how did it change your life? Merely having the Ten Commandments or hanging them in your house or even memorizing them. It's basically saying does no good. Putting the phylacteries on your, your forehead and your wrist does you no good if, it's, if it stays out there. And it's not in, inward and comes out of your life. And then he goes on to list three of the Ten Commandments in, in a way. He says here in verse 21, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? While you say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? And he lists these Ten Commandments. You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. They did not only know the law, he says, but they even they boasted in the law. This was their, their pride. He says in verse 21, or sorry, 23, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. They were such a contradiction. What God would say to them, I think out of um, Psalm 50, verse 16, would be very probably fitting. He says this, But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? They boasted in the law, and, and God would say, You shouldn't even have those on your lips. You're not worthy to even speak of my law. They may boast in God, but the reality is their breaking of the law, it dishonored him. And this is how he concludes this section here by quoting Isaiah 52, 5. He says in verse 24, For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Because of you. Probably one of the chief reasons why they hated the Gentiles because the Gentiles blasphemed the name of God in the way they, they spoke, and the way they lived. And, and he, he, in many ways, flips this and says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles, and it's, it's your fault. It's your fault. You're giving them fuel to the fire. You're the ones, you're the reason why they're blaspheming. So how close can you be to being a Christian and yet not be a Christian? 
I, I pose this not to um, unsettle any true Christians, and that's always the danger. Of some people have very tender consciences, and they're the ones usually quick to listen and quick to say, Lord, is it I? Is it I? And that, that's not, not the purpose. Um, although, because of that fear, we don't want to, we want to shy away and never make us question and say to, to test yourself and see if you're in the faith. Is the reality of what you confess true within? True within. The Puritans of old, as you, many of you read them, and you know they weren't afraid of causing, um, challenging people to test themselves. One um, Puritan, Matthew Mead, he preached a series of sermons that later they, they published into a book of, of sermons. It was called The Almost Christian Discovered. The Almost Christian Discovered. And he t- took the title out of um, Acts, where if you remember when um, Paul is giving his defense before King Agrippa, and King Agrippa replies, at least in the King James translation, um, he says, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. You almost persuade me um, to, to become a Christian. And he takes that phrase, and he writes a whole series of sermons or a book of how close can someone get to being a Christian and yet not be a Christian, to discover the almost Christian, the almost Christian. And like the Jews, today, in the Jews' case, there was many almost Jews. But we'll get, as we conclude this chapter, we'll see they, they weren't truly Jews. They weren't a true Jew, but they were almost. They had all the privileges. Externally, they looked like one. Some of them sounded like one. In many ways, they, they had the birthright. They had all these things, but that wasn't at the essence and the heart of what it meant to be a Jew. And today, there's, there's many almost Christians. A lot of external expression but is the reality true in our hearts? The almost Christian, one of the worst things about it is it's no Christian at all. It's no Christian at all. And as Matthew Mead pleads with his hearers, he says, many will go to hell at the very gate of heaven. At the very gate of heaven. There will be many in churches that have the gospel preached to them that will end up in hell. Some sitting here this day hearing the words and saying it was right there. It was as close as, as my, my mouth and as my heart. It wasn't far off. God brought it so near through the death of his son. In many ways, he did everything, and I didn't respond. I, w- I was almost a Christian. I was almost persuaded. But I didn't actually go forward. Now, that's the... First paragraph here. Our second subpoint, our second subpoint is religious symbols are only valuable if the reality that they symbolize exists. Religious symbols are only valuable if the reality that they symbolize exists. What does circumcision symbolize? It symbolized actually a, a changed life, a changed life. That's what circumcision symbolized. If you read in Deuteronomy ten sixteen, Paul wasn't, um, um, this wasn't new necessarily to the devout Jew. They would have understood this. Deuteronomy ten sixteen says, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. So 
That's what it was symbolizing, this, this removing stubbornness, not being so stubborn in your way against the Lord God. It said, circumcise your heart. And they even understood this was something that God had to do. It's something that needed to be done by God. Look at, listen to Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. So this is what circumcision symbolized. The reality of this symbol was a, a, a circumcised heart, a heart that's been removed of, of stubbornness, a heart that loved the Lord your God, a, a changed life. If the heart is changed, you see the life has been changed. You see it come out, but it's rooted in the heart. It's rooted in the inner person. Circumcision signified this inner renewal, this sanctification. And that's why Paul wrote in verse 25, he says this, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. This was a hard thing for a Jew to hear. Say, you're saying I'm not truly of the circumcised? He said, yes. You may have the physical sign, but if that inward reality is not there, then you're basically like an uncircumcised person. But he doesn't stop there. He pushes it even more. He goes a step further, and he says in verse 26, So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law... Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? This would have been shocking to say, wait, not only are you trying, you're saying I'm not circumcised, but this uncircumcised Gentile is circumcised? He's saying exactly, because the essence, the heart of what that symbolized he has, he's keeping the law. But that's not even enough. He goes even a step further. He says in verse 27, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. A complete reversal from where the chapter started. Remember the Jew is sitting there in judgment. He says, you who judge others, you think you're exempt? And now he says, actually, on that day, in a sense, the Gentiles can be lifted up as the example and say, look at this Gentile who kept the law. And they're going to condemn you. That example will put you to shame. It will condemn you. It will put you in your place. And so not only are they considered uncircumcised, the Gentile can be considered circumcised. The Gentile will stand in judgment on them. No wonder Paul was stoned and, and beaten. If he spoke like this in synagogues and gnashed their teeth, just like happened to Stephen, like he did to Stephen. And, and they, would, they would hate this, this type of, of, of speech. This is shocking. This is why the Gentile church could say they're the Israel of God. They're the Israel of God. By the grace of God, they were keeping the will of God, the commandments of God. Or listen to Philippians 3.3. He says in Philippians 3.3 about the Gentile church, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Philippians 3 is a great account of, of what we're reading here, of a Jew who put confidence in the flesh to say, when I came to Christ, I, I no longer put confidence in the flesh. I've turned away from those things, those symbols that I, I completely missed the reality of. Now I see the significance. 
It's like, like one of you being here and saying, I, I saw many people plunge in the waters of baptism, and maybe as a little kid I came forward and watched, or maybe I sat there and, and was, I didn't care, and, and now I, I see, oh, that's picturing the, the cleansing that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing can keep me back from that water. Nothing can keep me back from the reality that the blood of the Lord Jesus will cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And as you live your life and you see, I, I can't be a hypocrite. I'm not the same person. I, I died with the Lord Jesus, and I, I'm a new creature in Christ. That's what Paul says in Romans 6. Don't you know this? And that's, that's what he pressed, the reality of that symbol, that all who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. You need to work out the implications of this. That's true of you. As we've seen, these symbols, they have realities. And when those realities are understood, yes, they have significance and meaning, and they're wonderful and they're beautiful. The Gentiles who did that which circumcision represented, keeping the law, they would be lifted up as that example in judgment over the Jew. What can we learn from this? That religious symbols or sacraments do not work in and of themselves. The reality that they represent must be present. The reality must be present. The reality must exist whether that is the sacrament of circumcision or, or the, the Lord's table um, or baptism. Andrew Willett, he said, the truth has no need of the image, but the image has need of the truth. You see, the truth must exist. It has to exist. Now, that's not to go to the other extreme like the, the Quakers and others and say, then no, no symbols, no sacraments. Say, no, look at verse 25. For the circumcision indeed is of value, he says. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has a Jew? Drew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. There, there's much advantage. There's much benefit. But don't miss that if you're baptized and you have no heart for God, you never died to sin, you never rose again with Christ Jesus to newness of life, then that, that has no, no value. That has no value. Let's move on to our, our, our second main point. Second main point. These will be shorter, these, these last points. So true religion, true religion is a matter of, of the heart. Secondly, true religion is a matter of the heart. Not only does true religion change your life, but true religion is a matter of the heart. And he says this in verse 28 and 29. For one who is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor, um, I'm sorry, for, for one, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. True religion is a matter of the heart. If your religion is merely external, it's merely outward, no matter what you call yourself, it's not real. True religion, it's inward. What we profess on the outside, we must believe on the inside. Both are essential, but you, you can profess things and not believe them. But if you truly believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, 
you'll confess it, you'll profess it. There's, there's a, a union there of inward and outward. True religion comes from the heart, from the center of your being. What I mean by that, it's not something you, you, you tack onto your life. True religion is of the heart, it's of the core of who you are. It's not, I just happen to be a Christian and it's something I do on Sunday. Or I don't do these things because I'm a Christian. It's just a, an addition to your life. Or it gives you purpose even. It's the, the center, the core. True religion, it's of the heart. It's inward, it, 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 it's core, it's central. Christ is all and in all. And not only is it it's central, but true religion, it's in contrast to that outward, temporal focus of life. When Christ comes into your life, your, the, eternity dawns on you. And you're no longer just living like here. It's um, kind of like in, in Lord of the Rings, if you've read that or seen those movies, and um, Smeagol or, or Golem, he would, I believe, just look down, this creature, this, this person that kind of turned into a, an awful, wicked creature, and he forgot to look up. And that's kind of like how we're, we're born in this world, is we're, we're so used to looking at this earth, what we are going to eat, what we're going to drink, what we're going to wear. And when true religion, when Christ Jesus comes into your life, it's like you're, you're, you're turned up and you remember there's a sun up there. You remember your name, that I'm a, I'm a man, I'm human, I have dignity. And it's not simply I'm living to just get by the day, the day. there's an eternity awaiting True religion, it's, it's inward, it's, it's a, a contrast with it's the temporal focus. And this is something that as Christians we can grow in. It's not necessarily either or, where you may be a true Christian and say, yeah, my eyes are opened like Christ when he healed those people in one account. And they, he said, you see, and he says, I see people like trees. And then he touched them again. And then he says, oh, I can see clearly. And some of us are like that. It's like, I, I see, but it's kind of very dim. And then the Lord works in your life and you grow and you say, wow, my eyes have been opened wider and I see clearer and I see more fully. The Apostle Paul wrote this to the Corinthians. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so this inner and outer contrast what does he conclude from it? In verse 18, he says, As we look not at the things which are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so there's this, this eternal awakening to see it's no longer religion is, is merely on the outside. It's true religion is, is inward. It's of the heart. It's not just this temporal living. It's this eternal living. Say, I'm going to see what that which is eternally waiting for me. And some of us need to be careful of being overly introspective and always kind of analyzing ourselves. But most of us probably, and especially our culture, probably we are err on the other side. It, we need to be more introspective. We need to focus more on the inner. We need to focus more on, on, on thinking. We need to focus more on, on having a, a contemplative state. Probably many of us are, are too much like Martha, maybe never like Mary, sitting at the Lord's feet and, and coming to church and hearing God's word is so important where if, if you, you come and you go through the motions and you leave, 
and you don't have a desire to open up God's word during the week and sit at his feet, not even saying if you do it or not, but if you don't have the desire to do it, there's something terribly wrong. That's for, for all of us at times. To say, Lord, I, I am still a sinner. I, I don't hunger and thirst for righteousness like I should. I don't long for you like I should. There should be this focus on eternity, this focus on the inward. This affects all areas of our life, our, our repentance. If we are confronted with sin and our repentance is merely external, it's not inward. That's not true religion. True religion is it's inward. It's of the heart. This is what true repentance looks like. Joel says in chapter 2, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. He says, tear your, your heart, not your garment. You should have a, a much greater grief that I, I have sinned against God than if I offended a brother. And you should be concerned of offending brothers and sisters, but it should be inward of the heart and there should be a, a heart grief. When Jesus spoke in Matthew 6, I encourage you later to read that chapter of the, the focus on the, the, the life before God. The focus of, of this, this life that is a life of sincerity, a life rid of hypocrisy, and a life that is focused on eternity. If we think mostly about what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink, what we're going to wear, and we think very little about the kingdom of God, and say there, there's something wrong with us. And Christ he used stronger words than that. He didn't say think about the kingdom. Don't simply think about how you're going to survive. He said, do not be anxious. And that's often true of us. It's not just that we even think about him. It's that we're overly anxious. We're, we're so focused. And he didn't say, think about the kingdom more. He said, seek it. Seek the kingdom of God and seek it first. That's true religion. There's this focus on the inner, not simply on the outer. Our third main point, our third main point. True religion is by the spirit and not by the letter. True religion is by the spirit and not by the letter. You see this in verse 29. But the Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit and not by the letter. Now, this is different from the last point. This is not simply a contrast of our spirit versus external things from our spirit. He's, that's not the contrast he's making. A simple way to think about this is probably most of your translations translate um, that with a capital S, spirit. The Holy Spirit, and that's, that's I think, the right translation or the right, right way to, to word that is. It's speaking of the Holy Spirit, and the reason um, that is, I think, the proper way to interpret it is to say, um, if you look at other times when Paul contrasts the letter and the Spirit, which he does often, it's between the Holy Spirit and, and the, the letter or the law. You can read in 2 Corinthians 3 if you, if you want to see a, a, a longer section where he's contrasting the letter and the Spirit. And what he's doing here is Paul is speaking of the true circumcision that it takes place in the new realm of the spirit, in the new realm of the spirit. It may be referring to the spirit being the one who does it. That's possible. But more likely, it's in this area, the, 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 the realm of the spirit. In the spirit is where this takes place. 
And he'll bring out this more clearly in Romans 5, where by nature we're all in Adam, we're in the flesh. And we're under the law, and there's condemnation. That's in sin marked, and death marked that realm. And now we've been translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, and it's marked by the spirit of God. And in this realm, there's no condemnation, there's justification. And in this spirit, there is no death, it's life. And in the realm of the spirit, there is now freedom. And it's not that the God's law is, is, is ditched. That's where I say he'll talk positively and negatively about the law of God. The law in its condemnation relates to that old, that, that area of the, the flesh, or that realm in Adam, that which passed away, that old era, that old eon. And he says to the Corinthians, he says, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, it's now a new creation. At the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, he brought in this new creation, this new creation. And it's not that there was something, again, wrong with the law. It was everything was wrong with us. The weakness was all on our part. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says this. He says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, by our sinful flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so we see that what the law couldn't do, God did it, but he doesn't chuck the law. He says, so that the law can be fulfilled. The righteous requirement of the law can be fulfilled with those who are in the Spirit, who have the Spirit of God. If your religion consists merely in letter, merely in law, or merely in what you can do, not in what the Spirit of God can produce, then it's not true religion. It will not deal with your sins. You'll die in your sins, and the law will never be fulfilled. You'll be like Paul says to the Jews in Romans 9. They were seeking, they were reaching for this law, and they never obtained it. He says, but the Gentiles obtained it. They obtained it because they sought it by faith. They sought it by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it was fulfilled. True religion consists in what God has done in history, in redemptive history, what he has accomplished. And we share in this through the power and work of the Holy Spirit. And finally, we'll conclude with this last point. True religion receives praise from God, not from man. True religion receives praise from God, not from man. Look at verse 29 one more time. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter, his praise is not from man, but from God. And this, in many ways, really gets at the heart of the issue. Now, it may seem a little odd to end with, with praise. Why would he end there? And if you look at the text, it actually makes perfect sense. He started actually with praise. In verse 17, it's not very clear, but he says, you call yourself a Jew. And that, that word Jew, it came from the, the word Judah, when, when most of the people at that time were in Judah. And so they were called Jews. And the word Judah, if you remember in Genesis, when they, when they named Judah, Judah, it was for, because they were um, to praise God. It was praise. Judah means praise. And so in many ways, he's saying, you call yourself a Jew, but you're not being true to your name. You've, you've kind of flipped this, name, your namesake. Yes, your name means praise, but you want praise from man. 
You're always thinking about man. You're, you're praying so men can hear you. You're giving so that men can see you give. You're fasting so that men can see you fast. Do you ever do those things in secret before your God, before the Father in heaven? Are you looking for praise from him? Because if you're looking for praise from man, like Jesus said, you already have it. You got it. You got your reward. But true religion, it consists in, in, in a mind and a heart towards God. All these other things flow from this. As, as, as you've been changed, your, your, your orientation now is no longer on self. It's no longer chiefly on, on others in, in a, a sinful way to say, I live to get the praise of men. I do my religion for men. But it is before God. It is in secret. It's inward. I live for him. And that's the true Jew. The true Jew is one who wants praise, Judah, from God. They seek it from God. Jesus said in John 5, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? And this is what marks God's people. This is what true religion is. is you, you long to hear his voice more than other people. You long to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. You want that praise, and you're satisfied with that. That's what you're, you're looking for. That's what you're longing for. And so true religion, it radically changes your life because it is of the heart, because the inner person has been changed. And then from that flow, a doing of the law of God, a fulfilling of the law of God. And the end result is you have the praise from God. You receive your praise from God, not from man. Let us close together in prayer. Our great God, we thank you for sending your, your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, O oh God, that he has shed his blood for sinners. He has died for our hypocrisy, for our sinful judgmental thoughts of others, our esteeming of ourselves and receiving praise, Lord, from others. And we thank you that he has died to make a new people, to circumcise the hearts of people. We thank you that what you have done in the Lord Jesus Christ is eternal. And, oh, Lord, we ask you to help us to live in, a, in light of it. We pray you would remind us, Lord, what we have in Christ, that you would teach us, that we would grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Help us to understand more fully this great salvation. We pray that it would be seen more clearly in our lives. We pray, O oh God, for those who are outside of Christ. Lord, we pray for those who are almost Christians. We pray for those who are so close, Lord, that they would not die at heaven's gate. Lord, that they would not perish eternally. Lord, I pray that you would cause them to see and hear, open their hearts and cause them to respond to your truth. Lord, we thank you, we praise you, and it's your name we pray, amen.